You're listening to Frankly Earnest, hosted by Sam Christie, co-host and producer, Allie Hall. We're on the al- the the alley with the air. We're on the air with Allie. <laughs> we are on the air with Allie. <laughs> That's how they'll say it years from now, you know. Oh, you think um, so? Yeah, yeah. You're the future. I'm the old model. You know, I'm on my way out. I'm doing a victory lap. You know, Do- but you young people, you're what it's all about. You know, this is your world. You really believe that? Well, yeah, but you're going to have to do the same thing. I think as we get older, we should bow out gracefully instead of like, you know, hogging the stage or trying to, you know, rule the world. We are so happy to have everyone join us this week again for another episode of Frankly Earnest. In honor of Black History Month, For today's topic of the day, we're going to focus on historic Black women. I'll mention a couple of my favorites, but we'll focus in on Shirley Chisholm, her legend, the legacy, the unbossed. I wanted to take a minute and educate about the waves of feminism. The first wave of feminism was about the right to vote, property, owning property, and suffragettes of the 20s, things like that. For the second wave of feminism, it focused on equality. Think Equal Rights Act, Gloria Steinem. The third wave of feminism If you read online about it, it will say on certain sources that it started in the 1990s, but I personally believe that it started in the 60s and 70s with women like Shirley Chisholm. Folks like Chisholm helped others understand that the second wave of feminism was really only focused on the perception of privileged white straight women. The third wave wanted to include everybody else that wasn't a part of the second wave and wanted to make sure that everyone else received equal rights too. The fourth wave of feminism is further than what we're talking about today, but just so that everyone knows about it, it is from 2012 and is really characterized as the modern empowerment of women. Think the March for Women. Power of the Pussy. Um, There's amazing, my famous writer, like Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou. She wrote, Uh I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Um, Still I Rise, that poem everyone knows, and Still I Rise. um, It keeps repeating that. Everyone loves that one. Um, But she's she's often, um, you know, really forgotten about that she's a black woman you know and this was huge because in the 1960s especially in literature to be a published black woman wow 
you know, oh my God. And and this is when that, I believe, third wave of feminism is coming about, where people are understanding that there's intersections to feminism. That, right. yes, you have an experience as a woman, but being a black woman, there's that intersection of minority, you yeah. know, yeah. that you experience being black and being a woman. And you have both of those negative experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, and if you don't so have them, if you don't huge, have them, huge. you don't know what it's yeah. like. Like I have to learn about it. Um, I don't, you know, because I I grew up with you know the idea of the the portrayed to me on TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's take a pause and talk about intersections. What's an intersection? It's all about your identity. Think about your race, ethnicity, your class, your sexuality, maybe your weight, your gender, your sex, any of those. All of these intersect and overlap to create you your identity. So now, for example, let's think about me. One of my intersections is that I'm a woman. That can be oppressing, but sometimes I like to make it uplifting. That's what I'm trying to change. Let's think about how I'm white. That is privileged. That is a very privileged intersection that I experienced. So now, for example, let's talk about Shirley Chisholm, for example. An intersection that she experiences is being black, but that can be oppressing. Society at large oppresses black people, and then she experiences being a woman. And like I said, while we try to make it an empowering experience, at large, in the social dominant paradigm, we are oppressed. So she experiences two intersections right there of oppression. There's a whole matrix of oppression and it talks about how these identities correlate and how they correlate to society at large. It can be a little confusing for some folks to understand, but basically just look at it from oppression and privilege. Some of our intersections fall into the oppression side, and some fall into the privilege side. If you're a man listening to this, that would be an intersection that falls into privilege. If you want to read more about this, there are great things like Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Oh my god, Shirley Chisholm. So she was one of the the first black candidates for a major party's nomination for president as a Democrat. And not a lot of people know about this. This was um, 1960s. She was the first black woman elected to the U.S. Congress. Not a lot of people know that. Representative Shirley Chisholm. So she was, this is the same time as, as that I'm talking about with Maya Angelou there, that 1960s period. You know, we've got um, 
we've got people like Gloria Steinem really um, pushing that feminism movement, you know, and then there's folks like Shirley Chisholm in there who are, are really calling the intersections into, you know, the headline and saying, hey, I'm experiencing it as a black woman, you know, and really bringing that discourse to the table. And it's huge. It's huge. She, you know, a lot of people, um, I think the, there's a Hulu TV show out right now where she's kind of featured a little bit in it. So it's one of those reenactment shows where they kind of just like recreate what would have happened, you know, where they act it out like as Mm -hmm. if it's like a drama TV show kind of, but it does touch on Shirley Chisholm being that black candidate. And she, she was kind of like a, modern day Bernie Sanders, if you will. You know how everyone's like, Bernie, like I feel right, like she right. would have she would have been that for us. Nixon uh ran in the sixties and then was elected in sixty eight. Yeah, so that would have um, been the Shirley Chisholm race. Yeah. So Wow. <laughs> but you know, a bunch of Amer a bunch of polite Religious Americans, like the ones I grew up with, would have been, well, America's just not ready for, a, you know, a black woman president. I, that's just, you know, why would we want to make racism worse, you know? Um, they would, you know, oh, my God. Anyway. Well, I'm reading from, <laughs> um, you know, the History Channel. They have a website and they have a huge, great article um, by Becky Little about Shirley Chisholm. And it's titled Unbought and Unbossed. Um, why Shirley Chisholm ran for president. And I love that because she was really like her own boss. She would not, she stuck to her guns. You know, she did yeah. not want to be that, um, that candidate that got washed away in the, the political games of all of it, you know? Yeah. And so it, it, it says that it was really tense in July of 1972. It was um, a candidate who won the president was Richard Nixon. Um, whom most people didn't yet suspect of orchestrating the break-in. Um, for the first time, one of the candidates was a Democratic challenger, um, Black woman, Shirley Chisholm. And she had been long known for breaking barriers. Like I said, she was of that same era with Gloria Steinem. You know, people went crazy for, for Gloria you know, they envied her and she, she was part of that group. You know, there were all these powerful women that would convene and and meet and see what they could do to move the, the movement forward. And this is part of that third wave of feminism. Yeah. And um, it says that she launched her primary campaign in January 72. And she became the first black person to seek the presidential nomination from one of the two major parties. The first woman was Mar- Margaret Chase Smith, who sought Republican nomination in 1964. But we majorly care about Shirley Chisholm. And her slogan was unbought and unbossed. Nice. Four years before she started running, she'd become the first black U.S. congresswoman in history as a representative of her New York district. Woo! From the beginning, white male journalists and politicians didn't take her bid seriously. Norman Mailer called her campaign quixotic in the Wall Street Journal, writing that few politicians, black or white, believe it. Chisholm's strongest supporters were black women, but she struggled to win support from black men and white women. 
Many of them endorsed Senator George McGovern because they oh felt he was God. more likely to win against Nixon. Oh my God. Oh McGovern my God. won the nomination, but he lost to Nixon in the landslide. She ran to win, but she knew she wouldn't win. Her object was to create a coalition and then influence the eventual nominee at the convention. Chisholm hoped that she reached the, once she reached the convention, she could use her coalition of delegates to negotiate with the winning candidate in favor of rights for women, Black mm-hmm. Americans, and Indigenous people. Wow. Her opponents were all white men. But there was one in particular who stood out in relation to her. George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, who famously called for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was incredible that a black woman and the man who had been the face of Southern segregation were competing in the same primary. Yeah, that's true. That's that's crazy. Wow. And you know, that's so smart on her behalf. A lot of people would say, Well, why would she run? You know, why would she run if she knew she wouldn't win? Because there's this there there's this thing at the convention where if you have there everybody votes, you know, on who they want to be the nominee. And yeah. if you have some of the votes and one of the people who is front running doesn't have quite enough and they need yours, you can sway them. You can sway what they're going to stand for and they'll they'll bid for you you can get yeah. them to start bidding for you for what you are going for and she wanted to do that she knew she wouldn't win but she knew she could get enough of those votes she wow. might be able to go in there and and advocate for black women black men indigenous people that's amazing that's amazing wow that is amazing Wow. Yeah, we need more we'll of that. We'll definitely feature we'll feature her for this episode for Black History Month, if that's okay with you. Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm. If we're on the Shirley train, Shirley Chisholm. I am on the Shirley train. We've got like Shirley Reigns, who is the reincarnation of Shirley Chisholm. She is out on the streets of Skid Row, like we talked about. And then um we're featuring Shirley Chisholm from from history. Well, Two I am going to. I'm going to look up some more information about Shirley Chisholm. Did you know I, about I, Shirley Chisholm? I knew a lot of these names. I didn't know about her run against Wallace. I've seen some Wallace quotes, and I'm, I'm yeah. not well read at all, and certainly not on this topic. But, but I'd like to, to know too. more about Shirley. I'd like to Strong. read Shirley's words. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Really, an icon. You know. Wow. It's a shame. What a world, you know. I wish I could have lived in that one where Shirley Chisholm was president. My God. Right? Right, though? Well, yes, yes, yes. And yeah. we're, we, have to, we have to fight for that. Rest in power, Shirley Chisholm, who was born November 30th, 1924 in Brooklyn, New York, and died January 1st, 2005 in Ormond Beach, Florida. And what a force, you know, went out on New Year's Day to remind everyone in 2005 that there was a lot to fight for, a lot that she left off and a lot that we still have to go for. So what a force. Shirley Chisholm. Indeed. So it says here that um, George Wallace did like Chisholm for some reason. He did come down to Florida, went all over Florida, and said, if you can't vote for me, 
don't vote for those oval-headed lizards, vote for Shirley Chisholm, which blew people's minds. Um, he, uh, that crashed his votes because they thought that he was in, in league with them to mm-hmm. get votes. And that's when they, they killed him in Florida. Like, they did not like him in Florida after that. Um, but he, he had that assassination attempt five times. He was shot. Um, let's see. It says here that Chisholm visited Wallace in the hospital. Her supporters did not like it. Um, Chisholm arrived at the Democratic Convention with 152 delegates. Woot woot. That was more than those of Senator Hubert Humphrey and Edward Muskie, who'd been the two of the main challengers on the campaign trail. So fuck them. Go Shirley. <laughs> Yet she was still in fourth place behind Senator McGovern, Senator Henry Jackson, and the injured uh, Wallace. McGovern was the clear winner with 1,729 delegates, and his lead gave him no incentive to negotiate with Chisholm for 152. Even though she wasn't able to use her delegates as leverage, Chisholm knew her candidacy was necessary in shifting the paradigm in which only white men could be considered presidential material. Her presidential run was met with hostility from racists who vandalized her campaign materials with the N-word and men who told the Chicago Daily Defender that she was playing vaginal politics. But her candidacy oh. opened the door for other black and female candidates to run for president. She said many times, I just want to show it can be done. I'm sorry, vaginal politics. We're both children, so she sounds, she sounds amazing. And yeah. we're stuck on vaginal politics because we're, you know. Emotional children. Yeah. So I'm sure that might even be why, uh, you know, sorry. No, I'm just... Yeah. Oh my oh, god. You're good. <laughs> yeah. So that's Shirley Chisholm. Are are men have men not been playing uh, penis politics all this time? Exactly. It made me think immediately of all the people whose um, first bit they want to share about Kamala Harris is some accusation of of well, mm-hmm. she must have slept her way to the top. Yeah. Like I've heard that so much. Like it's like, oh my god. Like, oh, she couldn't possibly be an intellectual woman who has worked her entire life in politics and, um, you know, has, has been a lawyer. She couldn't possibly be qualified. Right. It's right. the, it's the uh, listener going, I'm uncomfortable with that story, so yes. I'm going to just change it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the writer now. I'm the writer now. Yeah, yeah. but, this, you know, this is the Let same just world. Tweak that, everything. Yeah. Same world that doesn't want to dash poor Brett Kavanaugh's childhood dreams. Oh, my God. You know? Wow. A couple here. Well, so I didn't learn about those in, in, in school. So, yeah. you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray, you know, the systemic racism that I have lived in, in, under and accepted. Mm-hmm. Like, I know who Rosa Parks was. So take it in. Take it in. We're still in the COVID pandemic. And, and we... Um, we just went through something so amazing in, in 2020, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which was worldwide, which was amazing. We had, pe- we had people in the streets in cities everywhere just saying Black Lives Matter and we need to end 
you know, and the folks who say they're, you know, for small government and freedom just came out loud and angry and just showing systemic racism. And then they've been yelling and, and, and calling the, calling the, calling BLM terrorists and, you know, like it's just ridiculous shit. Like we're watching like Nazis on parade, you know, literally. And I, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was this way. You know, I thought in the seventies, okay, my family's embarrassingly racist, but I'm learning about the great American melting, melting pot. There was a public service announcement about a little song and, you know, how we all come from different places, but we're all part of this one land and a big family. And isn't it great? You know? And I thought, well, that surely that's, that's what we've achieved now naively as a child. Um, I remember one specific incident, you know, and this was just, you know, um, it's, uh, I'm not good with the words. Anyway, I don't need to, I'll just tell the one incident. But um, this is indicative of, you know, what what it was like uh, with race at home. So when a, you know, a black person would show up on TV or come up in conversation, my dad would often say something um, like, I still, I wish I owned one of them, you know, or, um, or, when you caught, when you, you know, we should never should have set them free. We should have just, you know, killed them all. And then we wouldn't have them complaining now. Like that's the kind of stuff my dad would say. And my grandmother, if she was in the room would say, Ernie, don't you talk that way. Now they're people too. I mean, so she says to him, Ernie, don't talk that way. They're people. And then she thinks and turns immediately to me. And in a low tone and kind of a stern face says, but don't you bring one of them home. And I thought like all of this is really wrong, but it probably discouraged me from, you know, being open to meeting, you know, I, I ended up marrying a, a super pale woman and we had super pale children. And um, I, I don't know if that was a good move, but I, I definitely felt like, oh, I couldn't, you know, date a black person just because of all the stuff I heard, all that pressure. And I didn't think I was racist or, you know, I just, but as long as I'm casually, you know, just going along with the system and, and not hearing the grievances and learning and, and being a part of figuring out how to, how to change, then I'm just part of excusing a bunch of, horrible people rubbing salt in the wounds of and, and holding down the children of the slaves. Like the whole, you know, our whole, you know, it's old white men that, that run everything and they're reluctant to give up power. So they just, you know, say, well, that's a three fifths of a human, you know, or they're, you know, sitting on a porch with these two guys, just, uh, and this is my best friend and his friend. And the one of them, he's, he says the phrase, we're talking about politics in the world and blah, 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 and, and, and racism a little bit. And he says, well, the problem is you got this, you know, this class of subhumans. And I, and I stopped him and I'm like, hold on, who do you mean? Are you saying you think African-Americans are a subclass of human? And he got really, you know, like, I don't know if that's what he was referring to. I don't know what the heck he was talking about, but he backpedaled. All I did was just ask him to clarify. Is that what you're saying? 
And, oh, no, how could you even think? Oh, what? Oh, you know, uh, anyway, all the defenses. I know lots of black people. I'm not racist. And, you know, anyway, but he tried to dig it in there. And I think that that's because, you know, when when white people have gotten together for the last 400 years in, you know, in the right circles where grandma's not there trying to make everybody be proper or whoever it is, you have a lot of men standing around and 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 repeating these tropes of, you know, I wish we still owned them, you know, or they're dirty or stinky or, you know, my dad would talk to me this way. And I, I always knew like, this is, this is, this doesn't seem right. Like these are just people like us, but it's been really good for me to do, go beyond that and to listen to um, uh, creators on TikTok, to listen to people who are, who have some, a grievance who have some anger to express who you know listen to this one lady pale as the god and and she's not taking any crap and and she has some stuff to say that's harsh um but it's it's really good i'm there to listen i'm there to hear it you know because she's right you know and and her comment section is just full of people saying just awful horrible racist shit and tell it you know like threatening her calling her names telling her to shut up because she's the racist for even saying anything and anyway so i just like to turn her on when she's live and just listen that i need to listen i need to get those words in my head and i need to be ready for the next time one of these white guys in front of me says, oh, subclass of humans, I need to be ready to slap that motherfucker. Say, bitch, I know what you fucking meant. And shut up and don't ever say that shit again. I'm feeling that about it, you know? Because if we don't, like, confront it, maybe hitting people, that's where I go. Because I'm a white male. I can get away with saying stuff like that. I don't know. I shouldn't. <laughs> oh, it's maybe, so hard to, so hard to figure out life. I'm doing my it best. It would be best to confront it just um... verbally peacefully but uh-huh. still sternly standing well ground. it was it was pretty effective i think to just ask him is that what you mean are you saying mm-hmm. that right now yeah. and even if they say it clearly you know i should you know i could have said to my someone like my dad and that you know i couldn't have said it to my dad but i would now um you know you want to are you saying that you think it's okay for you to own somebody else you'd like to own them be able to buy and sell them You'd like it if the government set it up so that they you you could just pay money and then you could own them, but you don't because because what you can't just go over to that person and you know they won't agree to it. <laughs> and I, I think you know like he even would as soon as Grandma would say you know oh we're you don't talk that way you know like he would kind of adjust. You know? Why are criminals? Why do we think it's okay to kill them? And not, <laughs> we do not, but we don't arrest think that. them. We don't you know, think like, that. We no, we do. Some people do. They think that's okay. They think oh they think it's excusable. They think, well, he was a criminal. No, um, he should still not die from this instance. Like, let's arrest him and have due process. <laughs> that's the whole part of our, you know, albeit shitty legal system. That's the whole foundation of the legal system is that you get your due process. So how the fuck are you supposed to get your due process when someone's killing you because um, they're not listening to your pleas of I can't breathe 
you yeah, know yeah. that's not that's not justice that's not yeah. due process and that's no. not the american civil liberties union website has great information that i think you all need to hear half of drug busts are for pot and most of the people police are arresting aren't kingpins but rather people with small amounts of pot 52% of all drug arrests in 2010 were for marijuana. Think about this. Every 37 seconds in 2010, police arrested someone for pot. A lot of people want to make the claim that black people and white people don't use pot at the same rate. They want to say that black people use weed more than white people do, and that's just not true. Since 2001, black people and white people have been using pot at the same rate. But the arrests that have been made are not at the same rate. Since 2001, black people have been getting arrested four times more than white people. And that's still true today. If you're black, you're still four times more likely than a white person to be arrested for marijuana possession. This has to change. We over we over prosecute um uh for marijuana. <laughs> um yeah. and and you know but what we've done I think in the last 40 40-50 years is we've greatly reduced penalties for white people. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, so I think it's important to talk about it. It's important yeah. that I don't just hide and, you know, pretend, oh, what? Oh, I would never. Um cuz mm-hmm. and, and you know, and it's not fair. Um years ago I was on Seroquel, Lexapro drugs. Dial down my my uh my trauma responses to, you know, mute my emotions enough so not feeling like killing myself or that maybe yeah. I could function. but i was dialed down i was dumbed down and really you know it was it was hard to make much progress besides just oh i made it through another train down to selling all my guns at a garage sale because i had more times that i didn't want to shoot myself than the times when i did and i thought you know i'm going to shoot myself and then i'm not going to get to wake up in the morning and have those those orange danish rolls that i bought you know so i got rid of the guns so i wouldn't be impulsive but um but then i got turned on to marijuana and i had never never smoked it not really never wanted to and i'd never really been high before and suddenly smoking marijuana i was able to feel relaxed and calm and to even muse about feelings and and memories of my dad and experiences I went through without feeling alarmed I could suddenly look at my life in a new from a new lens you know I could even see myself in in the present day at, you know and and I could look past my ego defenses I could see that I was I was people pleasing or I was you know helping somebody hoping to get something and and you know and bitter that I wasn't getting it and I wasn't you know I could see my codependency, 
I could see my narcissistic tendencies. I could see my insecurities and, and with less judgment. And I mean, it's been a process, but I gave up Seroquel and Lexapro and pharmacy stuff and, and seeing the psychiatrist. And I just smoked weed and wrote in a journal for years. Absolute insanity that anyone in America acts as if systemic racism isn't real when we watch that we watch. Yeah. You know, it's we're we're hearing people say that it's just fine with them if a cop just executes a black man for or any color, what it doesn't matter. They're okay with it though in some situations because maybe that that guy, you know, had committed a crime. Well, yeah. I thought we were supposed to get a trial. Yeah, that's what you I'm know? saying. Like, and, where's and, the <laughs> yeah time we've got to you know kiss cops' butt and you know oh, their job's so dangerous. You know, it's it's six more times, six t- seven times more dangerous to be a roofer than it is to be a cop. And, and we don't kiss know, roofers. Like asses. no one's no one's not saying thank you. People say thank you all the time. You know, it's that whole idea of like the burning house. You know, no one's not saying that there aren't good cops. You know, we understand that. We get it. Yeah. You know, but we have a brother, sister's cousin's mother is a great female police officer. We love her. She's great. Okay. But there are still bad cops out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Just because the one you know is okay doesn't disregard the thousands out there mm-hmm. that are not making it safe nor okay right now. Yeah, and, and it's I don't even whole idea that. Sorry. Yo, Sorry. No, no, I don't even know if it's them. It's it's the system that they're in that we've created. You know, and and yeah. you hear in the way we talk about it, the fact that that we're even having to have this debate is the proof that our system is slanted yeah. into a racist bias where we deny. That, you know, these realities, we watch white families and, and, and white people in power protect each other mm-hmm. while, you know, even when it's like in the, in the Aubrey case, you know, it is, you know, a white law enforcement officer and his buddies who, who like hunt this guy and kill him. Yeah. And then the white district attorney protects him and tries to sweep it under the rug. But damn it, you know, too much got out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how white people interact with the justice system. And then they, you know, but they, oh my God, I can't like, I, I see it now. And, and that black guy getting shot in every video or, or, um, George Floyd with, with that fucker's knee on his neck, I'm looking and I'm like, oh my God, that's a person. They're doing that to a person like me. And, and that's scary. And that needs to be addressed and changed. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, mm, 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 mm. I don't know the answer exactly, but I know my answer is that I have to learn about it. You know, that is the answer. Yeah. We have to learn about it. We have to confront it. Mm -hmm. We have to be put in these uncomfortable situations. Yeah. And the uncomfortableness is not a bad thing. You know? Yeah. It's just question so if i could i mean my advice for black history month for white people is you know if you you know you don't have to fix it you don't have to figure it out please don't excuse it or deny it just listen to a little seek out seek out um someone who's who's telling you about what happened just listen and um and just add that you know to your to your repertoire but don't don't say anything you know 
You don't walk up to a car crash and say, oh, was your car, you know, inspected recently? Were you driving, paying attention? You know, like, no. You, you, you have exactly. to help people first. You have to hear people first. If we can't, you know, if we can't hear them, you know, because our, our knee's on their neck, then, you know, like Jesus, we, we've got to, we've got to listen. So yeah. just, yeah, you know, listen. It's funny, my, my right-wing best friend, who, who I swear, you know, super racist, uh, uh, racism denier, you know, like he, he just, you know, he's, anyway, but, <laughs> but he's always telling me to listen. It's been years and years, and, and it took me a few years of knowing him to realize he's saying listen all the time. And, it, and, it, and as soon as I realized that, then I, I waited for the next time he said listen. And sure enough, right after he says listen, Usually I cut him off with another story, but it turns out right after he says, listen, he's getting ready to say something important. And, um, (laughs) anyway, I said, listen, after the, after the important part, the important part is to listen. That's the lesson. Mm -hmm. So I've been watching, uh, I'm a white male, right? And I grew up in an all white, uh, community. And, um, and then I moved in 2000 to a community that is, um, nearly 50% black and, um, and had, you know, my first interactions really, um, with, you know, more than one or two people who were, you know, we had like, like every, every black person in town I can, that I, in my lifetime in California, maybe 10 or so I'm getting off track. Um, so I've had to learn a little bit and, and I've, you know, I've had to myself come to understand that um, the whole way that we're living and talking with each other is filled with um, the um, the consequences of of racism. Of you know, I think I think that when the first slaves were brought here in in sixteen sixteen nineteen, is it um, that immediately. You know, someone was explaining to somebody else how, oh, this is not really, you know, bad or, you know, this is all right. We're not racist. You know, there's other people that are are cruel, but we're not, you know. So this justification, right? And I grew up with a lot of that. And it's kind of hard to just automatically recognize it. You know, I like I'm a, I'm a white male. And, um, you know, you I have certainly to actively recognize that you have. Yeah, to. I certainly knew you need to, you need yeah. to be an anti-racist. Like I knew know? women weren't getting, you know, the same cool deal I, I was getting. But I, you know, I, I was perfectly happy with, well, you know, but it doesn't matter because I'm a boy. So I get to be a man and, you know, mm-hmm. that's how God wants it. So, all right, I'll just, you know, but I wasn't really aware and so I've been trying to um, I've been trying to listen to more um, um, uh, people of color on TikTok and, and especially um, black creators and um, and someone I really love is is Shirley. I met um, I met Shirley years ago actually in a in a coffee shop mm-hmm. and um, we're both very you know kind of gregarious um, extroverted introverts. Anyway, I, I think. Anyway, we just you know bonded right away, waiting for our, our lattes. And Shirley um, ended up out in Los Angeles and was just moved to do something for all the homeless people that she saw out there. 
and and she had been a cosmetologist and or is and and went out and and started trying to do people's hair, do people's makeup, homeless people, give them you know, mm-hmm. let them look fresh and feel feel pretty, and remember that they're a person. And yeah. like I've been watching her for years, and she's super. Like she moves so many people. I and but she's out there like coordinating uh, food and supplies for homeless people and speaking on their behalf. And it's not just LA. There, every town in America is is collecting money for the homeless, and not many of them are doing much actually to help. And they often stand in the way of people yeah. who try to help. And so Shirley's one of those brave people fighting that that battle. That's why I, I want her included in the. And in I have we done this yet? She should be included in our um, our link my link tree. I need to make that. Um, so so there's people made a link tree yet, but we are including her in this episode. I think yeah. we, I already have some segments in, I believe where yeah. um, we're talking about how um, any of, of the profits that we receive from this, um, we're going to be taking some of it and giving it to Shirley. And mm-hmm. we've got an exciting thing plan that you and I are working on. Um, the way to reach her on TikTok is, at beauty to the streets with a Z at the end. Yes. And she's got a link to her super social where you can find her cash app, her Venmo, her PayPal, her everything. You can, you can find her TikTok. You can find all different ways to donate and support. And um, right now she's at 3.9 million followers. Go Shirley. If Shirley can, can make a link tree, I can too. Shirley. <laughs> surely help us out but yeah <laughs> it's got it's got, it's got all of her links there so that if you want to find her paypal cash app youtube venmo instagram amazon you know there's there's things on the wish list that you can help um purchase that will really help um help them with with whatever they're trying to really do on the streets you know they're really trying to help these people out here and it's on the street too literally yeah. i love that yeah. you know she yeah. she truly I, I like that you mentioned that too because you're totally you're you're right. People don't go to the streets, you know. They're like, let's have this and that event, and it's like, no, the homeless aren't going to come to your event. Go to the streets and give them food <laughs> and a shower yeah, and help them yeah. find housing. And you yeah. know, no one's going to your event. Shirley Raines really is an amazing woman. She's making history right before our eyes. She goes to the streets quite literally and helps the homeless by giving them baths, giving them makeovers, helping them feel human again. Something that they often forget in the way that our society really casts out homeless people. She helps them get food. She helps them have a conversation. We really wanted to let everyone know that you can help Shirley too. Like I said, please visit her links. Visit her TikTok. Do anything you can. Just like, comment, share. Anything you can to support her. We're hoping in the future that maybe she could be on the podcast with us.
you know, we searched for a boat. We were going to go live on a boat and we went out to Washington. I mean, I have family out there, so it was an excuse, but I, we were, we were going to buy an 80 foot tugboat built in 1926 yeah. for, for $15,000. Wow. And we were going to live aboard it and fix it up. And oh my God, we got there and, and it needed a lot more work than, you know, I had imagined. <laughs> Someone I should had... be afraid to live on a boat that you have to fix up. <laughs> <laughs> like... You've got everything in one basket. And if, if it sinks, you know. You're gone. I yeah. mean, that is kind of the a whole trope of the first episode too like literally that's <laughs> it's very it's very triggering Ooh. well i learned from looking at um you know 10 to forty thousand dollar boats that a um you know 80 to two hundred thousand dollar boat is going to be way way more comfortable and way less trouble you know yeah I mean, you got you to really maintain awesome. them but yeah you can't you can't rebuild your house when you need it to keep you floating. Yes. Mm. Ah, anyway, boats, but a little bit of monetization down the road would be really nice, you know, and at, you know, yeah. at that level, just, you know, cause I, I kind of go see your fans. I, there you go. I kind of want land, but I, I hate the idea of owning land. I think that none of us should, or all of us should, and then everyone has a right to the land. We're all like native species. We're humans, you know, first. And then, you know, we have put upon us an economic and legal system that we've all agreed to. But it doesn't have to be that it comes first and people come second. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I've been reading a little bit of Jesus this, this week. So um, I think about... Um, I think about that a lot. I think about um, his, his meta message, you know, all of his messages about the kingdom. And it's funny for how much people outside the church know from Christianity. Like we hear a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Christian message in, you know, being given to non-believers, non-church attenders. And, um, and very little of it, very little of what the church decides to share with the world is ever something from Jesus His blood. They like him on a cross. They like him bleeding. Those parts are cool. They like him, you know, forgiven and shit. But when he, you know, this Jesus, you know, I, I remember reading it when I was a kid and a lot of his messages are tough and you can't, you know, you can't fuck around and half ass it. Like he's coming right to the heart of, you know, where your where you spend your money. That's where your heart is. What comes yeah. out of your mouth, that's what's in your heart. You can't dodge that stuff, you know? It's there forever. <laughs> or it was there. It's amazing that those words have been preserved, you know? Yeah. But a lot, I mean, I think a lot of what got put in the Bible is bullshit, too. That's my disclaimer. But You know, I have a lot of questions about it because I sat down with my grandma one day. So here's, here's a scenario that maybe you can touch on. Yeah. I sat down with my grandma one day, and she's very religious. She, I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't want to say she saw Jesus. I, I don't know if it's right to say she claims she saw. I don't know what the correct terminology would be to say. Oh, but yeah. she, she well, says she, she saw Jesus. Uh huh. 
Well, that's so, the truth. Yeah. So she's and, saying the words to you that she saw Jesus. She's telling you this. And I'll just believe. She, yeah. And so the, the, the thing that happened was um, she, she's super religious. She's, she's been walking with Jesus her whole life. Um, she's very, very, you know, I'm doing the fingers, you know, where you cross your finger thing. They're like that, you know? Yeah. And, um, she was going to be a deacon for her church, right? Yeah. Very small church right across the street. It's very like, you know, mom, pa kind of feeling. And she sat down to me and she's like, I'm really, you know, we have a lot of great conversations. I love this woman with all my heart. She said that she was really torn because she didn't know if she should be a deacon or not. Because in the Bible, it said something about it's supposed to only be men and men are supposed to run the house and have an obedient wife and all that kind of stuff. And and so, and and I kind of sat there and I told, I, I was talking to her and I was like, but you want to do this and you know, you'll do so much good for the church. Like, why? Why do you have to take this as, like, fact? It's been altered so many times over the years. Like, it's 2020, I think it was 2020 when we sat down. So, you know, regardless, it's a a 21st century, like, I don't know, you know? What do you have to say? What do you have to say? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, um, I got thinking about an interaction I had with another TikToker, um, worldwide phenomenon of male brutal male domination of females for most of recorded history there are little examples here and there of matriarchal cultures cooperative societies free peoples like the ones columbus slaughtered um Mm -hmm. and so it doesn't have to be that way um i i irritates me i've just thought of when when a a believer friend of mine will will instantly right now go to well people are sinful you know like we can't do any better we just got to accept things as they are (laughs) i believe they don't don't i believe it doesn't have to be this way i believe we could do something different and we're working toward that um but i think i think that we've along with domination like if we think about a family, if we come back to just my dad and me, along with yeah. the, the, the abuse and the domination come the calm times when we're being taught about authority and what God and God wants, you know, God put the, the dad there and the son's supposed to honor the dad. And, and then, and everything happens with it, within a whole framework of, you know, how we talk about it. And I was being told how we talk about it. And so I was feeling the whole time, like, I feel like I'm smart. I want to be smart, but how can I be so stupid? I keep fucking up, you know, and having to be punished for it. And, you know, I'm taking the weight on like Sandy's dead because I was a coward because I didn't figure out the solution because I waited too long. I always do that. And I would just like, just dive into that stuff, you know? And I, and, and, but it was, but it was part of his whole culture. And so the same thing that, that I thought I was, I was embarrassed. I was the only one going through. It's the same thing that happens in our whole society at large where, you know, women are, you know, 
internalize, well, God, you know, the almighty creator of the universe wouldn't want me to be in any kind of leadership position because I'm a woman. We all know that's true. And, and, you know, like that's the soup grandma was swimming in and she doesn't even see it, that it's, that it's, you know, it's, it's thousands of years of a few, you know, there's a few strong threatening men, you know, the dangerous man. But the polite men are like, well, yeah, but he might hurt us, you know, if we don't, you know, better do what he says, you know. And and the religious man's like, oh, you know, those women ought to do, you know, do for you better. And, and all of the polite men are like, well, I mean, if God said so, honey, you know, I guess we all should, you know. And everybody goes along with it. And and we have been for a long, long time. And to, to the point, like, it it's only apparent because... When people come forward, they are attacked immediately. So we know we've been fed a bullshit bill of goods about what people are and who's valuable. You know, I'm fully prepared to surrender uh, to women. I, I don't I don't I'm good with like men not being in charge anymore of society like at all. We can either serve and be useful or we can shut up and go away. And that'd be, I'd be fine. I'd, I would be like, sure. I surrender right now. Yeah. Show me where, what to do, you know? And, uh, and I, and I would hope that if women were in charge, they would do better than old white men have done because I don't have a, I don't know that I'll always have a place to live or that I'll ever be able to afford healthcare inevitabilities coming up. I don't know that I'll ever be able to retire. You know, I don't know that if in three months, I might be, you know, broke and, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and we've got a whole nation full of people and we're all, you know, two, three months, half of us are two, three months away from being homeless. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and probably 80, you know, 50% of us are, are, uh, we're, none of us are, or three months away from becoming a millionaire. That's that's not <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> except yeah, maybe, except maybe you and me. Let's let's see. Maybe <laughs> you got to roll those dice, you know. Anyway, but it's a horrible mm-hmm. system, and and they they grew up in that system, and they were they weren't taught the polite, nuanced uh, apologies for the Bible that have to be offered by the church now. They were because they lived in a time when, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if a woman acted up a little too much, we just call her a witch and burn her at the stake. That yeah. reminds me of Greg Locke. Have you seen that? That Pastor Greg Locke stuff? Mm-mm. He's a it's been on on TikTok a little bit, but he's this pastor, some kind of, you know, growing church, thousands of people there. And he recently in, you know, in a, in a service, there's a video of him saying he's identified that there are six witches that that have infiltrated the church and three of them are in the room right now. And he's, uh, we've got names, you know, and he's being really, really threatening and, you know, not, oh my God, not loving at all. I didn't really feel a lot of Jesus vibe coming from him. And then, you know, the next chapter comes out. I'm, I'm waiting for the final punchline, which will be, you know, what this lady knows about Greg Locke that he was trying to get ahead of. Um, but he identified a woman and, and her husband, and she's the witch. And it's, it's some couple that, that is in ministry somehow, like connected with him. And, 
and so he's like, well, there she is. She's the witch. Just wanted everybody to know she's a witch. Like, what the hell? And I, I just thought about, like, you know, kids in, you know, kids who hear this stuff, you know, are, are going to be a little bit more likely to call some girl a witch at school or church. Um, and, and what does that, what does that mean? Like an evil person that it's okay to, to hit or kill or, you know, it takes me back to when my, um, when my dad was insisting that my grandmother had a demon in her and that he had seen her eyes go black and he was sure I had seen it too. Which brings us back to what you asked a little bit ago about um, the statement when someone says they saw Jesus. Like back then, I didn't know. I, did he see her eyes go black? Or is he just imagining that, you know? Yeah. And, I, and, and me saying, oh, Pop, I think maybe you just imagined that was not one of the available options. He was he was hitting me and telling me your grandma's evil and you're going to say you saw it and you believe it too. And I didn't feel that way about my grandma. It was a really tough position to be in. Do you know where, do you know where we see things where we actually see them? Like our eyes take in um, the, the reflected light Mm -hmm. and, and it creates kind of a, you know, it doesn't create an image on our retina. Like if you could look at our retina, you're not going to see what we're looking at. But those photons are all taken in in the retina, which is connected to electrically through nerves that run to the back of your brain in the dark, the pitch black of the inside of your skull at the very back where your brain creates the, uh, your imagination of, of what's out there based on the input coming in but it's it, we created in the dark so when people say they saw something well i know that's where they saw it you know i saw things when i was a kid um i saw a hand in my closet once in the middle of the night and i was awake and it was just as real looking as it could be but i didn't see a hand there wasn't a hand in the closet to be seen what i saw was in my brain i put a hand there you know, I did it all. I did it all in my the same place I dream inside of my skull. That's what I think. So when people say they saw Jesus or whatever, well, of course they did. And if they grew up Buddhist, then they might have seen Buddha come to them. You know. So does that mean that we take what they say? We validate their experience. Well, okay. So what I don't want to validate is that you know th- this is not proof that the God that their pastor will tell me about is the real God of the universe who demands, you know, my obedience and I need to apologize and ask his forgiveness for my sins so that I can be saved and not burned in hell. It doesn't mean any of that, (laughs) you know? So sometimes people will be like, well, I've had experiences with Jesus. And I'm like, that is irrelevant to the discussion of, you know, whether or not we should believe that he's real or that, you know, or that any, any legislation should be written you know, based on the idea that he's real and we have to do it his way. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I get that. I think that we, we say we saw something or we had an experience and, and then we add all of these therefores to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. Um, and I don't like to do that. 
I think just I because I, yeah. 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 Maybe it's not just cause I'm bitter, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of pressure, you know, when you're, you're a kid, adults are really pushing a narrative and, yeah. uh, you know, you grow I think up. It's good to question. Socrates mm-hmm. wanted us to question everything. Like, know? doesn't it like, so you're 23. Is that right? Yeah. 23. So are you having the experience over and over again of like it, you know, it's just being revealed to you that the world is, is not well-planned. The world of, of, of men and power and society is not as well-planned and thought out as they pretend. Oh God. Yes, I am. Oh my right? God. Of course so, I am. Yes. Yeah. You know, so we, we, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for, for fucking sure, man, I'm a woman. <laughs> but the point is the history History is important for us to really face and learn. We should always be doing that. Instead of burning books, we should be reading them. Um, oh, my God. This is so obvious, right? Anyway, with the, with the religious teaching, our grandmothers were taught that this is from God. And you get this wrong. I don't want you to burn in hell forever. You know, and they and they were like taught that it's real, and taught it's real while being um, disciplined with the rod by people who believed that when the Bible says beat your son with the rod and don't worry you won't kill him you'll save his soul from death like they took that seriously and and their kids had no outlet anywhere in their society no voice they could hear of someone saying, wait, that's wrong. And, and so they never talked about it either. And now recent generations are slowly starting to talk about things. It feels explosive and everybody in you know the country gets all up in arms like, Oh yeah, can't talk about that. We've been listening to, well, what was she wearing for like the last 30, 40, yeah. 50 years, my whole life, you know? Mm-hmm. If a story came up on the news that someone had been, you know, possibly sexually assaulted or raped, every adult in the, in the room when I was growing up would start the chorus of, well, you shouldn't walk in that part of town at night. Well, you shouldn't wear those clothes. Well, did she probably gave him the eye or she probably enjoyed it or, you know, like, oh, oh, my God. My grandma used to, Grandma Lena, my dad's mom, she used to have a, a little poem she would make me recite. I hated it because I felt like she was saying I talk too much and that's the point of it. And I really wanted to talk, but the poem went like this, a wise old owl sat in an oak and the more he listened, the less he spoke and the less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't we be wise like that old bird? Well, she certainly didn't do it. Nobody did it. <laughs> nobody, like, nobody listened. They just wanted me to listen. The rules were all for I me. You know, I was there yeah. to be the Christian. I was there to turn the other cheek. I was the one that was supposed to forgive. Other people could have resentments and things that made them unhappy, but... Yeah. <sighs> I, when, when I was 23, I was getting ready to get married. And, um, and it was Christmas time coming up. And I wanted to go down to L.A. and meet her family mm-hmm. and have Christmas with them. And 
I told my grandmother and then she just didn't stop bugging me the rest of the time until, until I left about how I was breaking everybody's heart. This person and that person in the family, like that's what they look forward to every year is getting to see me at Christmas. And now how can I be so selfish? (laughs) Oh, oh. You, and you really want to say, really, bitch? Well, now I do. You know, she just died, <laughs> she just died last April. And I've definitely had many, many fights and disagreements with her. And, and, and bless her soul, she um, really loved me the best she could and was, was very willing to talk out painful stuff with me. Like, I talked out my whole conversion to atheism with her. And it was horrifying to her that I would say such things, you know, <laughs> Yeah. but, but anyway, but it's horrifying to me now. Like I look back and I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. Fuck you, man. That This is not, that's not how this works. You know, plus I was a kid. I, I years ago, I was going to go write my story and I was leaving to go to California and I hung out with these, these kids. And one of them was a kid I had, I had taught in Sunday school years before. So these kids now are all like 20, 21 and I'm hanging out with them, talking, telling them I'm going to write a book. And one of them says to me, please, please remember to speak up for the kids. And, um, and we talked more about it. You know, he, you know, I can't remember, you know, word for word, but we were just talking about how kids are under so much pressure and stuck in toxic homes with, you know, with one or two people or people passing through and adults that hurt them and control them and are always talking down to them. They're, you know, the, the, the adults that, that are loving and accepting, not every kid has a lot of those. And, but they do have a lot of kid, a lot of adults, teachers, uh, parents, all, all kinds of adults who, systemically feel fine about telling the kids that they need to be better behaved and they need to be quiet and they need to sit and they need to be respectful and they're not, you know, they need to learn and, you know, and this talking down to them. And I, I, I really wish that we as a society could just free kids, you know, why is that kid being rambunctious and loud? Because it's a five-year-old kid and that's what they do. Yeah. You know, like, and I didn't, I didn't give my kids that freedom when they were little. I tried to really tightly control their, not only their behavior, but their thoughts and feelings and, you know, definitely words. And I was way, way too controlling. I stand open for, um, you know, for therapy. If my kids want to talk anything out later, I'm, I'm here for it, you know? Um, and I, it, it was, you know, about half, halfway through with, uh, with my oldest, when I, I totally changed and decided I need to just completely let go and let them, let them do, you know? Um, and I, and it was hard, there, you know, all along there've been times where I, you know, I wasn't ready to let go of control. Um, and you got, you know, you have to protect them obviously, but, um, but we try to, we try to, as a society, we try to control what they express, you know, um, anyway, I don't want to tell their stories. I want to leave that for them. Yes. And, um, 
because the, they're their stories. I, you know, I don't yeah. know what it was like to be to be my kid. <laughs> and I, you know, I know as a dad, I, you know, I, I definitely feel the the you know the the weight of the ways that I failed to be there like I thought I would be you know the ways that I you know fell short and um you know that's not their problem either (laughs) um you know my feelings about it you know anyway enough of that but I want to remember the kids you know (laughs) in this podcast I kind of when we talk about like um racism or sexism um or you know people having religious stuff pushed on them or hate speech like like adults are doing that to kids and kids are growing up with blinders on ready to fight with each other over topics because they weren't allowed to entertain new ideas and you know and openness to the world the world's full of a lot of different people with a lot of different ideas and it doesn't all have to be one way, you know, your, your church is not the one that figured out how to follow the Bible the right way. That's not what's happening. That's just a thing they're saying to you. You know, they may see that in their heads and believe it, uh, just like seeing Jesus in your head, but, but they're, you know, it's just, a, the truth is it's a thing they're saying and whether or not there's a magical being giving them the, those instructions is up for debate. So people want to know how I found you. Yeah. Right. So I've gotten a lot of, a lot of people who know me and I've told to listen to the podcast. They're like, how did you find Sam? Yeah. So good question, everyone. I was having a glass of wine on some Saturday night and I was watching TikTok videos as I do. And because I'm depressed, hashtag depressed. Um, thank hashtag God, abuse of Rome. Wow, wow. It was That's crazy amazing. shit. But people, I mean, there's there's all types of TikTok, right? And so you're so saying you're, you were you're desperate TikToks. for the bottom of the barrel, and that's how you found me. <laughs> no. Your TikToks have hashtags like, I think, like trauma, trauma, or abuse, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And what happens on TikTok is you follow the, your, your For You page, follows those kinds of feeds. It pulls those hashtags and makes a talk for you, I guess you'd call it. It ticks, mm-hmm. and it produces a talk for you. I hear you. You know? Yeah. So yours just fell into the depression talk, trauma talk, that kind of stuff, because you talked about those types of topics. Yeah. And so I was like, I was so intrigued. And when I saw your playlist, you had it set up so you could watch the trauma stories all in one. Thank thank God for whatever pharmaceutical product and and help that can be had. Um, exactly yeah and you know um, something's great for depression is is usually a thing that's you know harder when you're depressed but having something exciting to do and look forward yes. to like a weekly well, podcast what anyway, i'm saying go on, is tell the story. on tiktok you're, you're the reason the you came up on my feed is because there's this thing called um what's it called like types of tiktok i guess you'd call it mm-hmm. and i guess depression tiktok trauma talk things like that you know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about? Yeah, I there's, know what you're saying. Yeah. There's things like bean talk Meta. where people were watching cans of beans. The pe- this was a real thing. People were watching cans of beans be put on the stove and then they'd turn the gas light on and then 
the heat would like make the beans rise out of the can. Yeah, and yeah. I was I was like, oh my god, I couldn't put it down. I kept watching them. And normally on TikTok, I'm like, scroll on one, keep going on my for you page. I don't go into it because a lot of the time when I go into it, it's either I get into a rabbit hole like I did, or I'm just like. I don't like what I've seen, you know, it's yeah, something that you yeah. can't unsee, you know, yeah, yeah. and I say that, I say that, I say that in the way that it's like bean talk or, you know, just this rabbit holes of all kind, I, I guess, I hear but you. this was, so you this was one of the normally. good rabbit holes. Yeah. yeah. And so I decided to go down it and I messaged you cause I had a, a glass of wine or two and I get real ballsy on social media and mm-hmm. I was like, I can help you make a podcast. Let me help you. And I, and I did not having, think you were going to miss it. I didn't think you were going to see it. Just having one of those days where I was like, fuck it. Let's just do something crazy. And I, really? I had been talking. No, I, I mean, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of those. I threw a dart at a map to decide see. to move across the country. But I, um, but I, I actually, when, um, when I was doing these TikToks, I was uh, getting a lot of calls, a handful, which is a lot for me, from guys I've worked with in, in this local uh, Raleigh-Durham area guys that I, I wouldn't expect to express these kind of sentiments, but calling me up and mm-hmm. saying, Hey, I just want you to know, Sam, that I love you. And I really appreciate what you're saying. And I was so surprised to, to get these messages from the heart and, and they just want to hear more. And I was speaking with uh, one fellow who's my age, um, uh, last company I worked for. And, um, and he was talking to me about a podcast. So we'd actually kind of sat around talking about it, like right before I heard, got the message from you. And I thought, oh, my God, you want to help me with a podcast? Let's do it. Let's help me with a podcast. I, you know, let's make one. And and now we're doing it, which is kind of, it feels, I feel calm. It feels normal. Oh, right. But a year or two ago, if, you know, this thought would occur to me, people would say, Dad, you know, my kids would say, Dad, you should do a podcast. You know, people would say, Sam, you should do a podcast. And I would think, oh, no, not me. I, you know, I can't do a podcast. And now I'm doing one. And I just think me of two right. years ago would be super excited that I'm doing a podcast <laughs> now. I'm trying to stay calm, you know, but, um, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it is really nice to, to be able to share these stories and, and know that people are listening and enjoying them and yeah. and getting some use out of them and you know i um if i you know I, I hope we can leave people on a positive note i hope we can leave people with stuff to think about yeah. um you know anyway i've been wanting to do this for years and yeah. you know i thought i should write a book I, you know you really you know you got to write a book right that's the thing to do um and i just i had so much trouble with it you know in in um high school my dad really really shut down all writing um he had already stopped all reading shortly before you know i think when i was 12 he went to the bible only method so i was supposed to go to school and be smart but i wasn't allowed to read books at home or do any writing for homework for school at at home so i had to do it all at school um anyway which was rough And, and it, and I sort of have some hangups now, you know, about writing. And so in the recent years, like trying to work through the trauma stories with my dad, you know, like, how do I write the story about the time that my dad tore up my journal and, and interrogated me and beat me all night because I had mentioned, you know, that I went to the boat with him or I mentioned that, you know, some details about the ranch. And I mean, he just laid into me about how this isn't your life. 
you don't have a ranch, you don't have a boat, you don't, you, this is my business and you keep your mouth shut. You don't write a, you don't, you don't write anything, write about your own life and you don't have one. Like, this is what I would listen to for just hours and hours on end. And, um, but I was really good at dissociating, you know, I had a really active imagination and I would just kind of tune out, you know, um, and you know, a lot of it landed, you know, it's, I've, I've had a lot of insecurities, you know, but, but I hear, Hey, I'm okay. I'm making it, you know, I'm plugging away, moving forward. And I, I, I hope everybody does. I hope everybody that hears me is, is encouraged to, you know, keep trying or try something different, you know, um, before, you know, give up on you last, you know, you can give up on jobs or everybody else, but, um, but hang on to you cause you might need it later and there's more life to be had. You know, one of my mm-hmm. most inspirational movies that I enjoy uh, seeing, there's a scene where the lead character um, played by the lovely Ryan Reynolds, um, shout out Ryan Reynolds. Um, anyway, uh, he, he's, uh, he's giving a speech to this, this, this would be bad guy. And, he, and he's, he's saying to him, you know, there's a lot of people in your life who are going to love you. And if you make the wrong move right now, you're going to miss out on meeting those people. And um, it's just in Deadpool. Like it's stupid, but like that line just stays with me. Like that hit my heart so much, you know? And I, you know, so I try to, I try to, you know, be the voice of encouragement. I hope it's kind of a dark voice, but then, you know, yeah, that's all right. (laughs) So I kept going. My dad put me through a lot of crazy stuff. And um, I think we've talked about, um, you know, a little bit about my mom and, and dad and, and, and the drowning and, um, and, and we're, we're going to get to, um, Sandy and some more horrific events. Throughout the podcast, you'll hear Sam and I refer to someone named Sandy. This is Lysandra Turpin. She was a victim of Ernie Christie Jr., and Sam was there when Ernie murdered her. While he did not partake, it has haunted him for years. There's information available about this right now if you visit Sam's TikTok at The Velvet Brick. We just wanted to make sure you knew who we were referring to and know that we call her Sandy because that's what she went by and we want to do everything we can to honor her. May she rest in peace. ...that I had with a pastor, um, you know, so I, I mean, I don't want to back up too far. This, this, uh, this pastor, um, uh, I was going to church there, married, had kids, um, and I'd been logging with my dad um, for eight years. So I started when I was 19 and I'm like 27 years old and logging with my dad. And, um, and I just one day, you know, he was talking crap to me and I, um, I told him to shut up and he said, why don't you make me? And I just spontaneously decided to get up and make him. So I walked over to, I've told, I think I've told you this story. I don't know if we have a good recording. We do have that recording, Sam, but we're going to leave that for another episode because you brought up a really interesting story to go along with it, and I think that you have something else that's better to say right now.
So back to the other story. Yeah, but I walked over and just started hitting him until he went down. And, and then he wanted to keep fighting, but I left. And I called him that day after I left. He yelled all kinds of things at me. But I, you know, I'm kind of immune to it. All those years of, of sitting there with him, listening to him berate me. Nobody can say enough to me to hurt my feelings or make me do something I don't want to do. I don't, I don't care. No, nobody has the energy to invest in hurting my feelings that much. I'm, I'm almost kind of immune. <laughs> I mean, stuff gets to me, but um, anyway, but that day, yeah, screw it. And, and um, I left, he said a bunch of stuff, but I was done. And I called him a couple hours later and told him I didn't want to work with him anymore. And almost immediately, within, within a week, I, I started having ting- tingling in my fingers and in my toes. And it was kind of mysterious, but I, was, I got another job uh, with a roofing company that I'd been working with in the winter. So I've got my roofing job, and I've got this weird tingling going on. And um, I didn't connect it to the, the stress of finally breaking free from my dad. But looking back, I think that's what it was. Um, and I, you know, it was a couple weeks in and I was standing on a roof and my legs just buckled under me and I went sliding off the roof and went right over the gutter. And luckily there was a lift truck right under the, the edge of the roof. So I just kind of dropped off into the back of that truck instead of the, you know, 12 foot drop to the ground or whatever it was. Um, so, but I did, you know, I said, well, I can't be on the roof because, I don't, I don't know why I just fell. And I went to doctors and, and couldn't get answers. And they, you know, uh, um, I went to the, uh, they told me I, I needed to see a neurologist. And so I tried to make an appointment, but it was like four months out. So I'm just sitting at home wondering why, you know, I, I'm, my body isn't working right. And, um, and one, one doctor um, who I just knew personally, he, you know, he said, Hey, if this gets, you know, if it gets to where you can't breathe or you can't walk, you need to go to the emergency room and then you'll be able to see the neurologist right away. And, and, you know, so within a month I was walking one day and then fell down walking and I thought, well, that's it. If I can't walk reliably, this is, I'll go in. And I, so I went into the emergency room and ultimately, you know, got diagnosed with, um, some some form of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune disorder, mysterious, uh, only affects white Anglo-Saxon uh, folks, um, folks in uh, Great Britain, England, Canada, Australia mainly. And, um, and uh, you know, it's very rare. But your immune system, my immune system was attacking my nervous system, eating the coatings off of my nerves. And I, you know, I got to where I could uh, barely, barely get up to a standing position and and if i was standing like i could i could walk around a little bit but if i took uh, like a walk down to the mailbox which was you know maybe a quarter mile total if i took a walk down there and back then i wouldn't be able to sleep that night from the pain and so i learned to just stay in bed and crawl to the bathroom when i needed to and crawl to the kitchen if i needed to and just not move too much and then that I could sleep at night. And so I'm, I'm in this horrible shape and we don't know. It's something like Guillain-Barre. The neurologist is working on it, trying to help me. And, um, and people started coming to visit from the church. 
<clears throat> and one fella, the pastor, he came over and, um, and he didn't have anything to say to me. Like I got up and walked, which was hard for me and walked out on the porch and visited with him. And, but we're just standing there and he said, oh, I'm kind of busy. I just came by to let you know that this sickness that you're having is a punishment from God because you opposed me in the last business meeting at church. And so I thought, well, I'm not going back to that church, right? So I was reminiscing about, about this, this pastor, uh, today. And, um, and I wrote, uh, I wrote a poem and it felt pretty good to write. You know, I, um, I don't write much. I got paid to write a book, but I, um, I never wrote the book. I have trouble writing because my dad, um, um, forbade it. Like he would not allow me to write at home. Um, or any, and I was to never to write anything about him or my life out there. Um, and, and he, you know, so I, when I start to write, it's, it's hard to, uh, to do it without going right into some, some, um, memories that aren't so pleasant with him. So I, you know, I, I kind of just gave it up, but I could still write poems oddly enough. And, um, yeah, so that's a weird one I'd like to figure out, you know. <laughs> Trauma affects us in so many, so many strange ways. Uh, you know, oh, if it, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for those little difficulties because of trauma, I, I don't think I would ever want to face any of it. You know, I'd rather just ignore it. But those little, those little dysfunctions, they, they get to you. Um, do you want to hear my poem here? Yes, yes. I didn't really want to write a poem. It triggers my PTSD. But I have a thing that I've just got to say. It's really important to me. Christians, it's you that I'm speaking to. Here's the devil to tell you your sin. God loves you, you say. On my phone every day. Like my heart is a war you can win. Many long Sundays I sat and I stood, taking each word to heart. My dad taught me how to humble my brow, and I really was saved. Don't even start. It's always this way, every church, every day, dancing in praise if you're healed. But if your health gets worse or cannot be reversed, then the pastor's lips are sealed. Each of us few who got groomed in the pew, and then sidelined and blamed and ignored. We heard of God's love coming down from above for the ones with real love for the Lord. I believed in God when I was a kid, but not that he really loved me, but that I should love him and do what he said, no matter my own suffering. You say your God loves me. You insist that it's true, but you're just rubbing salt in my wounds. I wish you would go away in your closet to pray. Find out what God says to you. Did he ask you to love the needy? Did he ask you to care for the poor? Can I ask you to carry my burden when he doesn't love me no more? I'm all done believing. It's too late for me. But I think there's still hope for you. I won't believe, but you could still love me. And all that I ask you to do is stop telling people God loves them.
It's a hurtful, lazy thing to do. Shut up, listen, and you love them. Then we'll see if there's love in you. And, uh, you know, it's funny. When, I, when my dad died, I, um, I decided I didn't um, want to follow God anymore. Not because I didn't want to, to be good or, or live a godly life. But because um, I felt like I had just done what I was forced to do. Um, when, when you're in church, you know, they, they, there's a lot of emphasis in these evangelical churches on making the choice to follow Jesus. Um, give him your life, you know, turn your life over to him. And, and I'd done that all through my childhood. But after my dad died and I started, you know, thinking about these things, I realized that I never even really had my own life. I, you know, my, my life was at the disposal or at the service of my dad and at his disposal potentially. And, um, and there was never a choice about following Jesus. You know, my mom and my grandma said I had to, you know, and impressed it upon me. And then of course he did too. Like, you know, he, he would talk like if I was ever not right with God, that he would just go ahead and kill me. And that would be his duty to God. Um, so every, every little slip, you know, other kids, you know, I talk to people my age and they're like, Oh, you remember sneaking out in school? Like, hell no. If I had snuck out of the house, like, Oh my God, I never snuck anywhere. I got off the bus, came inside, asked politely if I could change out of my school clothes. And then I got to work. And usually he said, no, just get out here and start working. So all my clothes were grubby and dirty. I only got to, he wanted to save water. And he said that, um, I only needed to do one load of laundry per week, <clears throat> one pair of pants, one t-shirt, one pair of socks, one pair of underwear, one washcloth, and one towel. So I was allowed to wash those things once every week. And of course I cheated, you know, I'd be in there and be, and so I'd throw an extra pair of pants in because I was so nervous about going to school with, you know, I mean, oh my God, it was the only place where I was hoping to have, you know, any kind of positive feedback or, or relationship. And I did not want to go to school with you know, grease and dirt all over my clothes that I'd been wearing for a week or more, you know? And, um, so I'd throw an extra pair in there, but, you know, he would often catch me and then, you know, um, you know, he was always hitting me, um, from, you know, like 12 to, um, 12 to 17 or so just hitting me all the time. And for all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it's kind of crazy. I, you know, I have trouble now um, doing things for myself. Because um, I have like a, like I, I, I have trouble doing things for other people. If I feel like I'm forced, I don't want anybody to ever force me to do anything. And I don't know how healthy that is, if that's right or not. I know it's in reaction to what I went through. Um, and maybe I, maybe I can just give myself permission to be done with, uh, pleasing other people. You know, I, it's been a long road for me to learn that it's, it's okay if other people are disappointed with my choices, they're my choices, you know? Um, but it's, it, it's been hard won every little, every little flag I stake in the ground. So I know when I put a poem like this on TikTok, 
that I'm offending people and, and maybe even confusing people. Like, you know, why does he have to say all this stuff? But well, that's, that's why, because I had to, I had to stand up. I have to stand up for me and I've always needed to do that and, or felt that need and didn't feel like I could back then. Um, so yeah, baths a couple times a week in his dirty water. And, um, (laughs) it does, it does kind of set the scene, you know? Um, so we had, we lived on the 13 acres up there and, um, I used to go up there with my grandpa. It was my grandpa's property. So when I was a little kid and, and then when my dad was in prison, my grandpa would often take me up there. And, you know, back then there wasn't, you know, anything up there, but an old bulldozer. And, you know, we'd spend all day trying to get the bulldozer running. Um, and then also he really wanted to clear the property. So he had these old growth redwood stumps, you know, they're like eight, 10 feet across and like, eight, you know, like maybe 10 feet high, they're big giant stumps. And, um, he wanted to get them out of the pasture so he could raise animals. Um, but we couldn't get the bulldozer running. So then he would kind of break down and get in the back of his truck and, and his, and his truck looked just like mine. It was just a, you couldn't see the bottom of the truck and nothing was organized, just a, you know, a foot thick pile of everything he'd thrown in there for the last several years. And he would find the box with the dynamite. So he always kept a box of dynamite and he was going to dynamite these stumps. And, and I loved that. It was really super exciting, but he, my grandpa was really cheap. So he'd take a stick of dynamite out and he'd think, Oh, I don't want to use a whole stick. So he'd cut it in half and uh, put a half a stick under there and, and blow it. And, um, and the stump would not come out of the ground. So then he'd put the other half a stick in there and, and, uh, blow it and and the stump still wouldn't come out and then he'd pull out the second stick and then he'd have this uh you know internal debate or the he was telling me like oh man i don't want to use a whole stick i already used a whole stick in two halves and at this point like he could have just put two sticks in there and been done for sure but (laughs) but he would put three or four half sticks in there not get the job done and then quit um, anyway, that's 13 acres. So that's where my dad and I lived in a double wide trailer with a steel garage and, um, you know, couldn't see any neighbors. Nobody could see what was going on in there. We were very, very private, isolated, um, you know, and, and, um, and he was, he was kind of, uh, always frantic about stuff we needed to get done. And, and there was, you know, usually a lot of stuff I needed to get done. You know, I'd come home from school and want to do my homework, want to get showered, want to put on, you know, um, maybe not shower. I didn't get to take showers, but I, I, that's what I wanted. But I'd come home and, you know, if I had clean clothes and he would be always in the middle of something that had to be done right now. He's like, I've been waiting for you to get home. And, you know, Sometimes it would be that my dad had lit one of those big redwood stumps on fire trying to get rid of it, but now it was burning too hot and it was starting to spread to the surrounding forest and he'd been working for a couple hours trying to put it out and he needs my help. And so I go out there in my school clothes and uh, trudge through the mud to get water and throw it on this big fire. And I mean, just, you know, everything I had got ruined. And, and it was stupid. It, it was stuff that didn't need to happen or we'd go into the boat, you know, um, but my dad had a, definitely had a drinking problem. Um, 
I didn't, I didn't, he never like brought alcohol home. He never like bought it and he wasn't drinking all the time, but he, he did like to get drunk quite often. And he usually liked to go into town. So if we went into the boat and he could get me started on a project and he had any cash, then he would leave and go to the bar. He didn't, um, I don't think he had a lot of patience for staying and working on the boat and he, he wasn't very good at building things or fixing things. So, um, he would have me do it, you know, a lot of the time, you know, and, and it was stuff I'd never seen before. You know, I was a nerdy kid and growing up at my grandma's, I just did my schoolwork and I did boy scouts and, you know, soccer and, um, guitar lessons, you know, but I didn't, I didn't go out and work much except for like mowing the lawn. So, so I didn't know how to, you know, how to drive a nail or not really not well. Um, and I certainly didn't know how, you know, the engine components and accessories worked on a, on a fishing boat. And I, you know, there was a lot I didn't know. And he would just have me start. And, and if I couldn't figure it out or wasn't moving fast enough, he would just hit me with, you know, whatever tool he had. We were, um, we were off, um, south of Eureka salmon fishing one time. And the, uh, he noticed that the, um, the alternator gauge on the dash of the boat was reading negative. So we weren't charging the batteries. And he's like, oh, I don't know how long that's been going on. We got to figure this out. And we really did need to figure it out because if the batteries weren't charged well enough, um, we would be in trouble in the morning. Our, um, our anchor winch on our boat had an electric motor on it. So we could drop the anchor and shut the engine down. But then in the morning, we would need to start up the engine, have enough battery for that. And then you need quite a bit of battery power to pull up the anchor. Um, so it's possible to start the engine and then be sitting there and not have enough battery to pull the anchor up and have to wait hours for, for it to charge. So, so it was really important that we figure out what's wrong with that alternator. And so, you know, we come into the engine room, we're out on the ocean, we're, you know, and, and never mind that, you know, I've, I, I didn't think about my mom much in these situations, but, um, you know, it must've been very familiar. I don't know. Um, but he opened up the engine room and he's like, get down there and find out what's going on. And so I, you know, I, I don't know. I went down there and I looked around and, and, um, there were, you know, two wires coming to the, the back of the alternator and, and I, you know, wiggled them and he yelled, Oh, what'd you do? What'd you do? It just worked. Steered it toward, toward shore and I tried to figure out um, you know just from his reports from above me where to hold the wire you know I'd just move it until he said there 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 you know and then he would yell when it wasn't you know charging and and I didn't know I couldn't see I was just moving the wire hoping you know the contact was just bad or something and you know I was just trying to hold it in position and there was a point where you know, he was starting to yell because it was discharging too much and I wasn't fixing it right. And I didn't know what to do. And he said, come here, get up here, let go of the wire and get up here. And I got, I put my, popped my head up through the floor of the, the cabin. Um, cause in the engine room, I, you know, if I stood in, in the engine room, I, my head was just above the floor of the wheelhouse above. And he just had me pop up so that he could take a big pair of uh, channel lock pliers and get me across the bridge of the nose with him. I, I have a scar there still. And 
And so he smacked me with those and I've got blood running down my nose. And he said, get down there and hold that wire and quit fucking around. And so I went down there and I was in a horrible panic because I'm, you know, oh my God, I'm getting beat for this and this hurts and sucks and it's scary. And so I just grabbed that wire and I pushed it into the alternator with all my, you know, for all I was worth. And he said, it's working, it's working. And I got both hands on it and I just held it there for like an hour and a half while we, while we brought the boat into into the anchorage um so it's funny like it was scary and traumatic and he's an asshole and just you know really fuck him forever but at the same time i was also learning that i could do more than what i might have originally thought and it's kind of ironic but um all of that kind of led to what I, what I've done for a career, which is fix things for people in their houses or their businesses. Um, the, the, one of my last employers, um, he, uh, one of our last meetings, he, he said that, um, that I have an uncanny ability to, um, to look at something I've never seen before, figure out how it works and fix it. And, you know, inside, I'm like, well, I know why, you know, I was under a lot of pressure, you know, but I know what it's like to what it takes to do that a little bit. You know, I know that it's possible from from all that with my dad. But I mean, he was just an absolute dick. And I and he didn't he had a lack of understanding and a lot of anger. And he really, you know, forced me to to learn things the hard way. Everything had to be the hard way. Something I saw someone talk about was the Poseidon adventure. Um, did your dad cop here? Uh, it does seem like your dad's imagination ran crazy with what he saw on TV, but like, what is it? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, okay. So when I was a kid, the Poseidon adventure would come on TV and my dad would always want me to watch it. We had to watch Poseidon adventures on. We've got to watch it. And of course, this is a time to, for the younger people when that's how, um, media worked. If you wanted to see video media, you were going to watch TV with an antenna on two, maybe three channels, and um, and you had to be there at the you know the programmed time for when it was going to be on the air. And so we'd see the ads, Poseidon Adventure, got to watch it, and I hated it. It was boring to me, you know. And I never sat there and connected the dots, you know, to my dad's story about how my mom died. I it's um it's Ernest Borgnine and um some I can't remember the the lady she's very famous or she used to be again not with the young people so it's a bad boring movie about a cruise ship that uh gets into a kind of a catastrophic situation and uh, begins to sink and all the people are you know like struggling to get off the boat and then they're debating about whether or not to just go out or whether they need something to hang on to when they go out, which was sort of my, my dad's big part of the story. Um, and then the boat rolls over on its side and the water rushes in the air is rushing out and it's sinking. And, you know, that was all part of his story too. Um, you know, so it's, my dad was a, um, a severe uh, pathological liar and I did not know it. I, I needed to believe the official story you know, that of my mom's death. And I did believe it. And that's what I did to survive. And, and my, 
story I told myself, which I think many kids do, is that, you know, my, my parents are good and trustworthy. That's, I can definitely trust them. And um, so my, I believed that even though my dad was awful to me, that, um, that he was uh, the one person I could trust to tell me the truth. And I, you know, and, and, the, and that was sort of backed up by the fact that he would tell me all this stuff privately. And sometimes it would sound fanciful and I would be left thinking like, maybe he believes this and I'm not sure if it's right, but you know, like he's putting a lot of pressure on me to say that it's right. Like there was one point where he was arguing with my grandmother and he wanted money from her. And when we left, he was so mad and we drove away and he's like, did you see her eyes? And I was like, huh? And he hit me and he's like, don't act fucking dumb. You saw her eyes when they went black. She's got a demon in her. You saw it, didn't you? And oh I was like, God. I, well, I don't, I, I don't know. And he hit me again. And, you know, he kind of made me admit that maybe she did, uh, her eyes maybe did flash black and maybe she does have a demon in her, you know, and I just wanted him to stop hitting me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe kind of, yeah. yeah uh, you know, uh, but I didn't like, oh my God. What would you have to say to people? Cause some people commented on your TikTok, like on your videos and stuff. Yeah. They're like, if you could change anything, would you have? Like, oh. What do you have to say to that notion of changing things in your life? Like, you know, in the past, like if you could have gone back and, you know, Father Christmas, whatever, Father timed it there's and a sense, gone back. There's a sense in which I think that little kid me at no point needed another version of me there with another idea. I was overwhelmed with indecision and voices in my head and I you know I guess you know people say those little messages and it's so inspiring you know I think I heard Will Smith say to his younger self keep going maybe it was just in a meme um but I mean you don't we don't we don't want to make sure that you know some person like Hitler has that poster in his room keep yeah. going no don't keep going dude <laughs> change direction <laughs> you know um there are all kinds of messages that are that are good that um that are seldom heard and and you know uh hmm yeah if i could go and like and change things i i don't know if you put me back into those times and i've been in my memories and watched these things you know like i and, and in my dreams too i had a dream where um where my uh i was with my dad in a house that i didn't recognize and so missing from the dream was a sense of this is his house and not mine. And he had just brought Sandy home. And I um, said hi and met her and then just got a hold of her and started leading her back toward the door and told him to shut up and back off. And, and she was confused. And I said, this, you see the walkway, just go get the fuck out of here. And she did. And I turned around and, you know, and that was the dream kind of wrapped up and he kind of, you know, surrendered to that. But I mean, I don't know, you know, where, where I could have done that. You know, I mean, it's so, you know, I beat myself up so much over this stuff for years. You know, if I had, um, I, I, when she was in the truck with me and my dad was, you know, in the, in the warehouse talking to people trying to find out if she was, you know, good or bad, you know, basically is the witch hunt thing. Um, I wasn't going to hit her or try to detain her. If she jumped out of the truck and ran the other way, I would have just said, oh shit, she ran away. Yeah. 
you know, and, and I knew I'd get a beating for that, but I'm, I don't, no, 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 you know, if a woman's trying to stab me, I, I, you know, I'll probably hit her, but I, but I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be aggressive or controlling of other people. You know, I don't feel, I don't, I don't want to, I don't like that at all. And anyway, but, but there was that she was, we were sitting there and he was, he was out of sight and she could have easily just escaped at that point. She could have just walked away and I could have somehow figured out how to help her to do that. And I I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to walk away. (laughs) It's this, it's kind of this weird thing when, you know, when this is the person that, that you, that loves you, that you're falling in love with, or the, or the, the parent that loves you and, and you're their child. And, but then they do these awful things, which, mm-hmm. you know, when this happens to us, like we get trauma bonded to them. It, 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 it ratchets the control down further. The beating isn't, you know, the final straw that, that, you know, people think, oh, well, I just wouldn't ever let anybody do that to me. Well, no, you've never had anybody put you in that situation dog until you've had it happen you know i don't i don't know what my choice was i couldn't just walk away when i was three you know yeah (laughs) um you know um yeah and so so you know and and then you become kind of trapped there I, i was 21 years old and um and decided one one day I was mad at my dad for you know doing something that I thought was immoral and I didn't want to be around him anymore and I'm leaving and I got in my truck and I left and it was like midnight when I when I rolled out and I drove down the highway to the south and then started feeling like ah this isn't the way I should go north instead you know and I and I turned around and I drove north drove you know another hour back home and then and then on the highway there was one highway that ran north and south and i ran up north on it for an hour or two and then i just i thought no no this isn't there's nothing up here I, I, uh, and there was one other highway that went east to the to the away from the coast in california um and it's about a three-hour ride to the next town and so i started heading that way and then i just found myself pulling over and stopping and i couldn't figure out why and I ended up just driving back. I got home about seven in the morning and, um, and didn't move out for two more years. And I, and I, you know, like I felt like what's wrong with me, like normal people can just leave home. You know, I should leave home. But there's something about having somebody that you, that's close, intimate, that is supposed to love you, that does love you. Apparently they swear they do, but also they're beating on you. And making you feel like, like you, you don't get to be a self. And then, you know, I mean, like to me, like how that's the same as what this racist society does, has done to black women since they set foot on this continent. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Frankly Earnest. Uh, Sam, do you have anything you want to leave our listeners with? Um, well, I, ju- I just want to thank all of you for listening and, um, and expressing your interest in the story. And especially I want to thank people who have um, shared photos of your pets or questions. Yeah. Um, any, you know, help us, help us go in the right direction. And, and I, I would appreciate that too. So, and if, yeah. and, you know, if you're just here to listen 
and you're willing to hear what I have to say, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. On that, if you want to see our Instagram, we are currently right now uh, still holding a contest. Send pictures of your pets um, who are excited to uh, have the new episodes of the podcast come out every week. The cutest pet, which will be really hard to choose, will win the best pet award and we'll repost them. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. I wanted to make a special note that Sam and I are currently requesting the missing persons case file for Claire Christie from the Humboldt County government. We'll give you more updates when we finally receive it, but it looks like it's going to take a little bit of time. And believe me, we definitely plan on talking about the legal system and this will be a part of that. So I just wanted to let you guys know that's where we're at. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Frankly Earnest. You can now support the podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash franklyearnest slash support. Be sure to visit our Instagram for daily updates and posts for our links at Frankly Earnest Podcast. You don't want to miss out on Sam's TikTok at The Velvet Brick. See you next week.